This is Pandemic Planet, the podcast where we talk about the urgent health security threats facing the world, the geopolitical and societal challenges they present, and how the United States can best lead health security efforts abroad while protecting Americans at home. Pandemic Planet is the podcast series of the CSIS Commission on Strengthening America's Health Security. While our sister podcast series, Coronavirus Crisis Update, focuses on what's happening in America, here on Pandemic Planet, we'll look at the global and geopolitical effects of health security threats. Welcome to Pandemic Planet. Hello and welcome to another episode of Pandemic Planet, the podcast from the CSIS Commission on Strengthening America's Health Security. I'm Catherine Bliss, a senior fellow at CSIS. Back in February, my colleague and co-host, Steve Morrison, who is Senior Vice President and Director of the Global Health Policy Center and the work of the Commission, were joined by another CSIS colleague, Heather Conley, who is Senior Vice President and Director of the CSIS Europe, Russia, and Eurasia program. At CSIS, Heather oversees a portfolio of analytical work related to foreign policy and national security issues in Europe. In recent years, she has placed a special emphasis on the nature of leadership in the region, and the evolving U.S.-Europe relationship in the context of diplomatic outreach by China and Russia. In this episode, we have the opportunity to talk with Heather about the impacts of COVID-19 on European political and social movements, the importance of European leadership during the COVID-19 crisis, the significance of the recent G7 meetings and Munich Security Conference, and the prospects for successful COVID-19 immunization campaigns and economic recovery in 2021 and beyond. Heather, welcome to Pandemic Planet. It's great to be with you, Catherine. Thank you so much. And you too, Steve. So as the pandemic got underway in 2020, Europe, the United Kingdom, Italy, and Spain in particular, were exceptionally hard hit with high caseloads and mortality. The entire region has suffered negative economic effects, and people are weary of repeated lockdowns, curfews, and school closures. The birth rate has fallen in some countries. And yet the arrival of new viral variants that may be more transmissible or more deadly has led to a fresh round of travel restrictions and border closures in a region in some ways defined as one of free movement. Here in the United States, we've seen debates over COVID-19 and debates around mask wearing, social distancing, and personal liberties spill over into protests last summer and episodes of political extremism earlier this year. Germany is in the middle of a political transition as well, with electoral processes underway in other countries too. So I want to start out by asking you, how has the pandemic shaped political outcomes in the European context? And to what extent has the pandemic really you know, reinforced the idea of European unity or tested that concept? Well, it's a great question. It's really done both. It has profoundly tested European solidarity. And in other ways, it's, it's reinforced it. So you're absolutely right, I think, in describing, you know, we've been in this uh, pandemic lockdown mode for almost a year to sort of separate the phases of this. And you're really speaking about that first phase where Northern Italy, Spain, the UK, France were hit incredibly hard. And the instinct of those European leaders were highly nationalistic. It had nothing to do with solidarity. Boards were very capriciously closed without coordination, and that actually stopped the free movement of humanitarian supplies and food. 
You had calls from physicians and leaders in northern Italy begging for more PPE, and the German authorities wouldn't send additional material. So you just had the worst of instincts. But the good news, after sort of that worst nationalistic instinct came out in the beginning, they understood that was the wrong instinct. They course corrected. Humanitarian supplies, PPE, began to flow from Germany to northern Italy to Spain. The European Union began to coordinate what they call green lanes, which is sort of fast-tracking the movement of goods across the EU. And I think that moment of sort of, whoa, we can't have that nationalistic perspective That is where the European Union, the European Commission, I think, began to seize and look at the opportunity to create uh, greater capacities for the European Union to address health. Health is a national competency across the European Union, although they do have, you know, a commissioner that is largely looks after health issues. So in some ways, the commission said, maybe this is an opportunity. We can create a health union and create greater unity. I know we'll talk a little bit later about how the, the EU began then to organize itself for vaccine purchases and distribution, that's where I think things went back to that nationalistic instinct versus solidarity instinct. So the European Commission, you know, as you pointed out, I mean, up until this point, didn't have an across the body health function. It was very much situated at a sovereign state level. But under the leadership of Ursula von der Leyen, I mean, she's really kind of brought together the European Union in supporting the launch of the ACT Accelerator, the Access to COVID Tools Accelerator last spring really trying to bring diagnostics, therapeutics, and vaccines to the global community, and then negotiated for vaccine procurement, I guess, on behalf of all 27 member states. And so, as you pointed out, I mean, this was sort of a solidarity approach that was a departure in some ways, but has also raised some criticisms as well. Some people have said there was sort of too much of an emphasis on solidarity, that this Negotiation on behalf of the member states limited the ability of sovereign governments to negotiate directly with vaccine manufacturers. Apparently, it didn't stop them. Some countries did band together. You know, this quartet of Germany, France, the Netherlands, and Italy, you know, did reach some of their own agreements. But there have also been criticisms that the approval process has been too slow and that this emphasis on really trying to stand with one European voice on the vaccine procurements has been more of a challenge than a benefit. So I guess, you know, I just wanted to ask, do you think that we will see more of this kind of collaboration, maybe a revised version of this in the future? And what are you hearing from the people you're talking to about the vaccine rollouts? How do you see this voting for the future of collaborative health efforts within the Commission and the Union? It's a great question. And, you know, in some ways, you ask a European leader, how does the European Union evolve? Well, it evolves through crisis and the EU seizing the crisis as the opportunity to deepen integration and strengthen solidarity. So this is exactly how the EU, the Commission, viewed purchasing the needed vaccines across the EU, but they had no experience in doing it. So that was sort of problem number one. This had never been attempted. Absolute to your point, these decisions were made on the national level, not at the EU level. And the challenge was you had four of the largest EU member states already galloping out ahead to make that procurement. And again, this would have been a disaster because you would have had the four wealthiest, you know, largest countries 
countries getting vaccines, the other smaller, medium-sized EU countries having to fight with one another. They didn't want that image. So the commission had to get in some ways in front of the galloping four and take over the whole process. But herein lies the problem. What the EU decided to do was treat this like a trade matter. Again, the EU is a powerful trade and regulatory power. So they pulled a colleague who negotiates trade negotiations. And what does a trade negotiator do? Well, they're about getting the price down and making sure the liability isn't there. So the EU spent a little bit longer time than probably would which was wise, negotiating with the vaccine producers. Their strategy was also, again, this is, it's perfectly reasonable. It just didn't turn out the way they had planned. They wanted a very broad dispersal. They wanted to make sure that they spread the vaccine procurements out across many companies. And they made a bigger bet on the traditional vaccine production, not necessarily the mRNA technology. And of course, the U.S. sort of did the opposite, went with the technologies, went very quick, was probably a little less interested in in price, more about getting those promises uh, secured. And so, again, a very well thought out approach. Let's do this together. Let's not let just a couple countries get ahead of it. And then we're fighting each other. That's not a good look. Let's do what we always do. Let's deal with this as a trade matter. And the problem is the result of that is now a massive political headache for the European Union. So political panic is beginning to set in. Germany, of course, in particular, because they're having an election on September the 26th, and this has gotten caught up in those politics. A lot of finger pointing at what the commission did and didn't do correctly, and lots of finger pointing. But what they're really worried about is the longer this takes, Europe will not economically recover as quickly as the U.S. and other states. And of course, Southern Europe is absolutely panicked because Europe relies so much on tourism. If they don't get vaccinated, they are afraid they're going to lose another summer. And this would have devastating economic consequences, particularly for Southern Europe. So in some ways, it was well thought out in the strategy, but everything they thought would be successful ended up not being successful. They're quarreling with the vaccine producers, and now they're under political pressure to be able to deliver more doses than they can produce right now. Yeah, just in terms of particularly, you mentioned some of the Southern European countries that are both dependent on trade and, you know, really looking for efforts to scale up these access to vaccines. You know, there are reports that some of them are turning to the Russian made vaccines, Sputnik B, or some of the different Chinese products. And what is the discussion or the sense, you know, within the union over those kind of extraneous deals as all of this debate about access to the other ones rolls out? Well, you're absolutely right. And another thing that the EU was a little slow on was giving regulatory approval for these vaccines. Everything was a little slow. And as that, again, political panic concern that the EU did not meet the challenge, that they don't have enough doses, they can't be more immediately distributed. EU member states have gone out and you know said, well, if you're not going to help me, I'm going to go look elsewhere. So for instance, EU member state Hungary, it's National authority has already approved allowing Sputnik V, the Russian vaccine, also the Chinese vaccine. Now, that is not approved by the EU, but Hungary, 
disregards that and has immediately moved out. Even German Chancellor Angela Merkel has stated that, well, we shouldn't turn these things down, but they would have to be approved by the EU medicine agency before they could be used. So you're exactly right. So if the EU cannot produce and deliver as it had promised, now individual EU member states are sort of, again, this is the worst nightmare. They didn't want the 27 states to go out and do their own thing, that there would be you know, solidarity, everybody would work together, they would be sharing. It's now starting to get a little bit more dynamic, and this is going to be hard for the EU to control. And of course, great power competition has now entered the vaccine equation, and EU member states are particularly concerned now that Chinese and Russian vaccines may be soft power and being used in Africa and elsewhere where the EU wants to make sure that it continues to maintain European soft power and influence. So again, when the EU starts not to deliver, the panic begins, they start looking for alternatives, which undercuts all the solidarity and the efforts that they have done so far. Thanks, Heather. I want to follow up just a little bit on what we've been discussing right now. I mean, here in the United States, we've had stumbles, right? We've had multiple stumbles. We've had prediction upon prediction prove false in terms of supply of vaccines, when, what volume, on what date, and the like. And the public has been torn here and there. And it was a particularly acute under Trump, but it didn't stop uh, in the early days of Biden administration. They're struggling with this, and they've every day trying to readjust. And some of this has to do with the manufacturers struggling with their own uncertainties. And maybe they overpromised, but uh, they're having production problems and they're dealing with all of these things. And okay, the EU is serving a market of 450 million people versus 330 million. And it's divided into 27 countries, not a bunch of states and municipalities. But I was struck by Ursula von der Leyen. She apologized. She came forward. She said, we made mistakes. We were too slow in the process. We came to the table too late. And I'm really sorry. I expect also that they're like people here having pretty intense conversations with the manufacturers and saying, okay, we need a much more accurate rendering of this. The difficulties that AstraZeneca has had have compounded things. We can talk a little bit about that and talk about the controversy surrounding that. But before we get to that, though, do you think that Ursula von der Leyen is significantly damaged by all of this? Or is she going to be able to get past this set of problems, which is not just being felt in Europe, they're being felt in many places? Ursula von der Leyen has been damaged politically from this, no doubt. And she's had to apologize repeatedly. There has been so much scrutiny. Again, we can talk about Brexit because those two are just competing because they want to see in some ways who gets the benefits from leaving the EU. Do you get benefit from staying in the 27 or do you get benefit from getting out and being flexible and nimble? So this is part of this competition. This has been five years of tensions between the United Kingdom and the EU. And as I said, it almost, you know, putting all the complexities aside, this is the first real test or examination of who benefits being outside the EU or being inside the EU. And on vaccine procurement and distribution today, it looks like the UK is more successful uh, than the EU was. And that is is difficult. That undercuts, again, sort of the, the, the mantra that we are stronger together. But if we're slower together, 
that has real world uh, applications, particularly in vaccine distribution. So it's a real microcosm of the increased tensions between the European Union and the United Kingdom. We want to move on to talk just a minute on G7, G20, a little bit on the Munich Security Conference. I want to go back to something that Catherine was raising earlier about Russia and the Sputnik Five, the Sputnik V, which now has, of course, phase three clinical trials have been published in The Lancet. They're being treated much more seriously and the deals are moving forward. Is it your sense that we're going to see Sputnik V markets within Europe? Are they going to get authorization through EMA? Are they going to be able to move it? What do you think? So I think it's definitely a possibility that the EMA does eventually give approval, but it's going to be the EMA catching up with individual EU members that have already made those right. decisions. So again, it's not the EU and the driver's seat, it's the EU playing catch up. You know, I think there's a there's a couple of challenges here. I think Russia itself is having vaccine manufacturing challenges, right. lots right. of promises, a lack of clarity of how many are, are distributed. Clearly, there will be geopolitical implications of, of, you know, Russia providing vaccine to Serbia, the Western Balkans, some of its spheres of influence for sure. But again, it's already, I mean, by already pulling one EU country away, Hungary, they've already proven their point. But again, if the Russians would have gone through the steps, we should welcome more vaccine. It was unfortunate that they decided not to go through the appropriate steps. I think they would have had maybe quicker and and more welcome receptivity if they would have gone through the clinical trials and had the transparency that I think everybody had hoped they would have gone through in the first case. Well, they may be entering that now, now that they have published the phase three trials from the Moscow trials, and those have been taken very seriously. So we may see a change here. So last week, we had President Biden joining into the G7 meeting that Boris Johnson hosted. We had the same day, the Munich Security Conference, which President Biden appeared at with a number of other luminous figures from Europe. It was a big, big day for the reemergence of a different kind of American foreign policy with a heavy focus on on the transatlantic alliance and the major power coalition, raising a lot of hopes uh, with a very heavy emphasis on health, on the pandemic, on pandemic preparedness, on meeting the gap, covering the gap in vaccines, on supporting COVAX. At the G7, they raised seven and a half billion dollars going towards COVAX. Well, they added another 4.3, but It was a significant step forward. And of course, around the edges, a lot of discussion around, okay, when are these countries that have snapped up the doses that are going to be coming into production, the wealthiest countries sitting on 80%, 90% of the supply, when are they going to get serious about using those surpluses to meet the gaps? Because we don't want to be waiting a year or two years before making some determination. Macron from France said, well, maybe we should get ahead and then make a commitment, forward commitment of 5%. Uh, Boris said, "Mm, in principle, perhaps not too early. President Biden didn't talk about it at all. And these are hypersensitive issues in the midst of our current crises and our struggles, as we've just been talking about, to get through the past the supply constraints. So where do you see this heading in terms of the debate that's going to happen In G7, G20, we have the Health Summit, May 21st. The EU G20 Health Summit's coming up. That's going to be a big moment. So between now and then, how do you see these issues evolving? 
You're absolutely right. Friday was a big transatlantic day. America is back. Both the G7, America's back and re-entering multilateral institutions like the World Health Organization, the World Trade Organization, and working with allies and partners is such a key moment. So again, I think it goes back to our conversation on the, the United Kingdom. This was a great way to spotlight the UK's leadership of the G7 a great way of displaying, again, the UK struggling with COVID, but feeling more confident in its manufacturing distribution plan. And again, the G7 power is very concerned. The Russian and Chinese vaccine going into areas, influencing governments and regions and diminishing Western influence. So I think all of these factors uh, certainly came together. But you're absolutely right. Again, the politics of this, it will be very difficult for leaders who want to show that they're supporting countries that can't get access to the vaccine, but they have to be very careful because they have to take care of their citizens. And so you're going to see this very careful balancing act. You know, again, Macron is the perfect example, wanting to make sure that there's vaccines available in Francophone Africa to you know continue to maintain French influence, understandable. But at the same time, President Macron, who's going to be facing a presidential election next year, already very much politicking that moment, has to take care of French citizens at home. And my concern is, while the EU has made very bold promises, if they don't get their own distribution and manufacturing up, it's going to be very hard to tell their citizens that those vaccines will be shipped elsewhere. So is it, I think they have to manage this carefully. The instinct is right. We have to do more for those countries that don't have access to this, while at the same time, managing the domestic constituency as quickly and carefully as possible. Now, Merkel, the elections are June, right? No, German elections? September, September, September. Really, all eyes are on the German elections and the political dynamics within Germany. There is a lot of finger pointing right now. I, I find it's probably the most politically dynamic in the whole EU sort of vaccine question. Uh, so that one will be something to watch very carefully. Well, you know, I mean, she's been in power 14 years and she's become within Europe from a global health standpoint, she's become a savior. She's done things that no one else could do. And she's driven the commitments forward in a dramatic way, including when the Trump came in and we stepped back, the Germans really stepped forward. So are we going to see continuity in German approach or is that an open question? So I think, again, think of this in phases. Germany had an exceptionally good first phase of this crisis. We were admiring how much they were able to control things. We are not in the same place in sort of what I call phase three. They are, are seeing you know much more active cases. You are seeing a lot of resistance when it comes to lockdowns. And they have been, I mean, again, you have to appreciate Europe's lockdowns are much more significant than, than U.S. lockdowns. They're quite severe, although they allow schools to continue. It's that's sort of where we're across purposes. They have had pretty violent outbreaks. In fact, the, the first parliament building that was attacked was the German Reichstag from lockdown protests. We're seeing the very exposed in the Czech Republic right now, which the Germans just got admonished by the EU for rapidly closing a border without consultation. So things are getting a little more what I would call wobbly in Germany. In part, they're experiencing now a much more significant part of COVID, a public that is very weary. 
and political forces that see both opportunity and challenge over the next six months before the Bundestag elections. I just wanted to get back to this question for a second of the transatlantic collaboration. And, you know, you're saying that it's very hard for governments to make commitments internationally of vaccine supply when it's not clear that, you know, they're going to have the entire population covered at home. And that certainly makes a lot of sense. But we know that, you know, lower and middle income countries that are likely to get vaccine later need to have strong immunization and other health services in place in order to be able to effectively deliver those in as fast a way as possible. And, you know, I'm just wondering what you see, even in the midst of pandemic and all this debate over access to supplies, what you see in terms of the potential for renewed or stronger U.S.-European collaboration around bilateral health approaches, you know, support for countries on the ground and sort of more general global health security and even looking ahead, pandemic planning, you know, purposes in the longer run? Yeah, I think this is this is a great question. And there is an enormous amount of transatlantic collaboration across the health spectrum. I mean, just looking at Pfizer and biotech, I mean, this is a transatlantic product, literally. And I would suspect and, and hope that transatlantically we can look at future vaccine development and production. And again, thinking about Western supply chains. We can trust our allies and partners to provide needed components, PPE. I know, look, I mean, I, I want to be very clear, trust has been profoundly broken in the transatlantic relationship very much because of President Trump's behavior over the last four years and his actions. And that's going to take a long time to rebuild. But I think we can rebuild some of that in looking at how our vaccine production, our surveillance, close cooperation with CDC and its European counterpart. I think we can come out of this together and stronger because the vigilance is going to be extensive. On sort of looking at the development spectrum of humanitarian and global health projects, the EU is a global leader. They are a global leader in development and humanitarian assistance. And it's something that we've always worked very collaboratively with the EU, whether it was Ebola, whether it's major global health challenges. So we have that backbone, if you will. The Biden administration is going to look for every opportunity to work collaboratively with our European allies and partners. I think it's a question of, you know, obviously the funds. Budgets are under great strain because of the domestic requirements and the economic recovery. But I think, again, there's a strong sense that to ensure that there is strong Western influence, Western policy, Western, pro-Western feelings, we have to be part of vaccine distribution and helping countries get through this as best they can. If we don't do it, others, Russia, China, other actors will step into that void and there will be very much diminished U.S. and European influence in those regions. Heather Connolly, Senior Vice President and Director of the CSIS Europe, Russia and Eurasia Program. Thank you very much for joining us today sharing your insights on the impacts of COVID-19 on European political, social, and economic processes, and your insights and speculation in the crystal ball as to what the future holds for transatlantic collaboration and collaborative work in the years ahead around global health and pandemic preparedness. Thank you very much. If you enjoyed this podcast, check out our larger suite of CSIS podcasts. 
from Into Africa, The Asia Chessboard, China Power, AIDS 2020, The Trade Guys, Smart Women, Smart Power, and more. You can listen to them all on major streaming platforms like iTunes and Spotify. Visit csis.org slash podcasts to see our full catalog 